0: Speaking of which, let's pray together as we come to the scripture. Father in heaven, now we come to this which is your word we ask. That you would enable us to listen to hear that which might sound old will be new to us and fresh. Thrill our very souls, so help us. This we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to Isaiah in chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52, I want to read beginning with verse 13 all the way through Isaiah chapter 53 as we come uh, to this word. So please, Isaiah chapter 52. In verse 13, hear the word of God. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. you know, if you've been with us during this Advent season, I've sort of broken from my normal tradition of preaching through a book and just taken some time to work through a couple of passages. This is the fourth, really, uh, in this prophecy of Isaiah. These passages which we've looked at are called the servant songs or the servant poems of, of, of Isaiah. And they speak of this one, uh, to whom Isaiah calls, God himself calls, the servant of the Lord. That's a generic term, can be used of many, but as it's used here, we see this one is different. This is the very one who is the servant of the Lord. And as we've looked at each one of those, we've got a, a bit of a different glance, uh, more insight into this one who is the servant of the Lord. This one who was then, in the days of Isaiah to come, and we know now has come, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ Now, as Isaiah wrote this, he wrote it in such a way that it would be a great blessing to the people of his own day and even those who would come a hundred or so years later who would be in exile and they could read this and say, oh, there is hope. There isn't just political hope because we know this one Cyrus would come and bring the people who had been exiled, would bring them back to Jerusalem by conquering the Babylonians. You know that. We talked about that. But there would be one who would not only bring them back from political exile but one you could bring back from spiritual exile from exile from god and bring them back into the very presence the very family of god and that would be this servant of the lord and so important is this servant is is that there are two questions really posed in what i've read the first comes from the first verse of of chapter 53 who has believed this? So important is it to get it. So important is it to see it. So important is to believe it. To, that, that God asks us in the midst of this, Who really believed this? And then in verse 8, he says, who, who really considered about this very one, this servant of the Lord? Who's pondered why he came? Who ponders? Who's pondered why he died? Does anybody see that? Does anybody get it? This is different. This, this is something that, that everybody must must really, really get, what everybody must really, really see. And it's appropriate for us at Christmas time really to, to tackle all of this because the, the big question of Christmas is who is this one who was born and why did he come? Do you realize that there aren't many in our day who see it, who get it, who understand it? It's astounding to me that we celebrate Christmas every year and still we're so blind and we still don't see it as a culture of people. If you ask, why... Did, do we celebrate Christmas? Why did this one come, this Jesus who was born? Most don't really think he was actually a person. They think he actually born. And if he was, it was just some sort of symbol of peace. But peace about what? And peace with whom? They really don't know. And some sort of symbol of love. But what is the expression of love that was given by his birth? They really don't know. And no matter how many carols we sing, no matter how many Christmas hymns are played in Walmart... I assume they are. I don't go to Walmart, I must confess. It makes me nervous just to think about going there. But if you go to Walmart and if you work there, that's fine. I'm just not a shopper. Um, More of a catalog guy. But, assume it's played all over the place. People simply just don't listen, don't get it, don't hear, don't understand. So the question is, who truly believed this, who's considered why he came, who's, con- who's considered why he died it's really the question of the ages it's the question of history it's the most important question that we can be faced with in the context of our lives if he really is who he claimed to be if he really did what he claimed to have done if if what the Bible says about him is really true then it's everything is wrapped around him not only all of history but all of our lives and so who really has, has believed him and we realize that even in the days of Jesus the answer is not many I mean some had it revealed to them they got it in some sense Mary and Joseph She pondered, Mary did, these things that the angel told her in her heart concerning her son, Joseph as well. Name him Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins, Emmanuel, God with us they had this sense, Mary, Mary sang all about this one who was to come, who was to be her salvation, the salvation of the people of Israel, Simeon, this old man at the temple, he, he saw this baby Jesus come with his mom and dad in their arms to the temple when he was little, this baby and he, he got it, he knew, he said, ah the consolation, the salvation of Israel now God I can die, you promised me that, that I wouldn't die until I saw the salvation of Israel, now, now I see it, so now I can die, Anna, another woman, old in the temple got it she saw she knew who this Jesus was John the Baptist saw Jesus he the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world but even in the midst of that Joseph I mean uh, uh, Jesus' parents and his family thought him a bit crazy at times John the Baptist when he was in prison began to wonder Is this really the one? Is this really the Lamb of God? Is this really the Christ? Please tell me. There's a great expression by Peter one day when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And he said, we're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And and yes! And Jesus had to caution him and say, "But, but Peter, you didn't get that on your own. It was my Father in heaven who revealed that to you. And it was only moments later than it appears that Jesus says, now here's the deal. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be I'm going to suffer there, and I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to be killed, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. And Peter said, Oh no, you're not. <laughs> he knew it one minute, not so much. The next. Who had a category in their brain for this kind of thing, for the for the to God to live among us and dwell among us and to give himself for us in such a way that, that he would die and rise so that our sins could be forgiven. I don't blame them for it. It needs to be even healed. To whom has the arm of the Lord? Isaiah writes been revealed it needs to be revealed to us to be, to be brought up close and personal to us so don't blame them I'm just saying who believed in Jesus day? not many he, he went around teaching and they marveled at his teaching but they wondered who he was is he the prophet, is he a prophet, the prophet who is he really this Jesus he did miracles, they were impressed but when he fed 5,000 they came back to him and said feed us some more we'll make you king that way there will be a chicken in every pot That will we will have food all the time that's what you can do and Jesus said no, no, no I don't want you to make me king this isn't what this is all about right here and now he taught them he forgave sins he did miracles he raised the dead and yet Many wondered about him. They kept saying, But isn't his mom and dad, Mary and Joseph? He's not that impressive from his background, from his pedigree. How, how can he be any more special than anyone else, really? And he's from Nazareth. I mean, really? You get a great sense on the day we call Palm Sunday as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. It, it appears as if everybody's getting it, but that doesn't last very long, does it? It's not very many days. Until we realize that, oh, they're not quite seeing him as he really is. And on that night, even his closest comrades, his disciples scatter. Peter, his dear friend, denies even knowing him after he's crucified. They're wondering in this upper room what really happened here. Some go back to the profession of fishing even after jesus is risen from the dead he's walking along the road and people are leaving jerusalem going back to their home of emmaus and and jesus is with them and they still don't see it until the very end and he has to explain to them about himself which he does of course he tells them about himself. He opens up the scripture. He looks in Moses and the Pentateuch. He, he looks in the Psalms and in the writings. He looks in the prophets. No doubt he comes to this passage as well. Because as, as we look at the Gospels and as we look at the New Testament, this particular passage which I read this morning is, is most quoted from the Old Testament. Especially in the context of the, of the life of Jesus. There's so much here. It, it sort of drips of, of the very life and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And very explicitly, of course, uh, it's singled out. There's a scene in the early church in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, where, where Philip comes upon this Ethiopian and, and, and this man is, is reading through Isaiah chapter 53. He's reading through the passage that begins, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him, the good news about Jesus it was all about Jesus this particular passage of scripture that we've, we've read clearly it was seen after Jesus' resurrection yes this is of him so many allusions to him. He himself would even speak of his own death and its reason. He would speak of going to Jerusalem and being killed and rising. He would say that he would do it because he came to seek and save that which was lost. He said that he would do it so that he would give his life as a ransom for many. He said that he was the good shepherd and he would lay down his life for his sheep. In fact, so significant, so important is this death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, so important as to why he had come. He had come to die and to give himself with all of the gospel writers find this as the very climax of gospel of good news there is no good news without this they knew it they couldn't share about jesus without sharing most particularly about his death and his resurrection so as you're reading matthew mark luke and john as you come to them you find that everything leads to the cross everything leads to the empty tomb everything leads to his his appearances why because there is no gospel there is no good news without this because the good news is that this very one has come and this very one has come to conquer sin and death and to rule and reign over the lives of his people and and, 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 and can't happen, amazingly so, without his suffering and death. And so as Isaiah comes to lay out this servant for us, he speaks of him in this way. Now, this is really a poem, a song. Uh, I'm not a poet. Uh, and when I say that, I always worry that people go, oh, no, I didn't do very well in poetry <laughs> in school. Uh, I'm just a guy. I didn't either. Uh, I don't write sonnets for my wife. I wish that I could. For those of you who can, bless you. Um, but, but don't talk to my wife about those things. Um, I'm not that guy. But it has five stanzas to it. And, and, and each one... Uh, speaks to us of this one. The first stanza is in the end of chapter 52. It's in verses 13 through 15. And, and it begins this stanza. And I'm just going to walk us through this. Because I want each one of us to ask the question of the text. Do I believe this? Do I really believe this? Now, for many of us, we go, yeah, this is sort of the old story. We we know this about the cross. We know this about the crucifixion, about the death of Jesus. But the the question is, do I really believe this? Do I stake my whole life on this? My very existence, both now and forever. Is this the guts of it for me? And I must say, I worry. This This is sort of an occupational hazard, I suppose. But I worry. Because it's very easy to listen to this on a Sunday and then the rest of the week act as if it means nothing. And so they worry about us. And The great thing about Sundays is it's a time of regrouping. It's a time of reaffirming this covenant with God and listening to His promises saying, Yes, that's true. So we need this. He sets this rhythm up of one every seven days to come together and to do that, to reaffirm this, to to, to, to to say yes and amen to all the promises of God. And so it's good sometimes to go to the basic ones, the guts of it all, and say, yes, that whole thing, I believe, I buy, so that when we leave this place, it permeates everything in our lives. So that's the question. Do I believe this? Have I considered this? Have I pondered this? Do so I get it? Do I really understand this? Do I sink deep into this as the very foundation guts of my life it begins this first stand uh, uh, rather triumphantly. Verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely, that is successfully. Everything he does will be right. He'll know exactly what to do and he'll do it well. He'll act wisely. He'll be successful. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And, and, and that's great. You remember, we even read it in one of our little readings this morning, responsive readings that Jesus said, when, when you lift me up, you'll get it. You'll see it when I'm lifted up. And so you get this great sense of, of him being lifted up. But this moment, we're not quite sure what that means, but it it sounds like it's a great exaltation. When I think of being lifted up and somebody else being lifted up, I think of somebody somebody, somebody being spotlighted and, and you get this great grandeur and majesty. But notice verse 14. Many were astonished at you at this servant. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that which of the children of mankind so you you get the sense wait a minute I was expecting something else here I wasn't expecting you to tell me that he was going to end up being one who looked like a non-human being somebody we're going to recognize as a person wait a minute that doesn't sound like being exalted and being lifted up what is the deal here Verse 15, not only that, so shall he sprinkle many nations, that whole sprinkling thing. Yeah, this is. The servant, the Presbyterian, um, is going to sprinkle many nations, cleanse them. And here's what's going to happen. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. So amazed will they be at him that they will have nothing to say. And Isaiah spotlights kings. He says the kings of the nations are going to cleanse nations. And, and the rulers of those nations, those who were the most powerful in those nations, those who thought they knew everything about those nations, those that were the exalted ones of their nations are going to sit in awe amazed at this servant who has his appearance so marred that you can't even tell he's a human, human being and then the next day, chapter 53 the first three verses, he says okay, who has believed what they heard from us we've, we've said, not many in the days of Jesus, but believing is of great and utter importance And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That expression, the arm of the Lord, is the very power of God to save. It's the outstretched arm of God that's the figure throughout all of the Old Testament of God coming and rescuing his people. And so, who's going to believe that this one, whose appearance is marred beyond uh, human semblance, beyond recognition, really, who's going to believe that that one is the very power of God? can believe that. And he says, not only that, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Now, that's kind of an interesting little expression, a root out of dry ground. You don't expect anything out of dry ground, but boom, boom, there comes this little shoot. Shoot. And so in the very days of Israel, in the very days in which Jesus was born, Israel was in great decline. No one would have expected anything out of her, most especially anything from God out of her, in the midst of being sort of under the rule of the Romans and all of that. And other the culture of the day had so infiltrated them. But here we see this root, but, but that's it. And he said, but, but then it sort of declined from there, because he had no form or majesty that we would look at him, no beauty that we should... Desire him. There wasn't anything about this Jesus growing up that you said, Well, there goes the Messiah. Didn't look like it. I think from the external appearance at that point. In fact, what happened was he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide, hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. In other words, we didn't value him at all. Can you imagine? And we know this sense of his suffering, of his sorrows, and his, his grief. You can see that in the course of the, the life of Jesus most definitely. He wept. At the unbelief of Jerusalem, it pained him. He had compassion upon those who were in deep difficulty and trouble. Even when he saw death, he wept. He wept at the, the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. He, he got it. He understood that. But we know his severe sorrow, his severe grief came at the time of the cross. We see it in two instances, really. We see it, one, in in this scene at the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is so sorrowful that he he sweats, and his sweat is blood, and, and it's so working in him, this sorrow, and you know what happens. He, he pleads with his father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, it may it pass, but, but not my will, your will. And you see the struggle of a real human being. You see the struggle of a real man in that situation. He knows exactly what he's facing. He isn't simply facing death in the sense of no longer being on this earth, no longer breathing. That, that isn't the point. It isn't even facing the, the, the pain from the, from the flogging and, and, and all of that that he's facing. It isn't even this sense of rejection that he's facing, being being rejected by by those close to him or even others. It isn't that. Isn't even the injustice that's going to happen in the course of his life in in, in that trial when he's going to be falsely accused and, and condemned to death and all of that? It isn't that. But he faces the sorrow, the grief of knowing that he's going to experience the wrath of God. And then we see him do that. The sorrow, the grief that he experiences on the cross isn't the pain of it, though that's true. It's that moment in time when he cries, my God, my God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Why am I here alone? Why? That's the moment. He says, you'll see him. Yes, you won't even recognize him as a human being. He's going to be so flogged and beaten and all of that, so emaciated because of the experience of dying in that horrible way on a cross. No one esteemed him at that point. Then the next stanza, it lays out the reason really for his his death. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet... We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In other words, people would walk by him and say, he's getting what he deserves. God is doing this to him because he's blasphemous. He was the one who was walking around and though he's a man, he was making himself out to be God. And this is what happens to people like that. He claimed to be the king. This is what happens to people like that. God says, no, that's not true. Therefore, everybody thought that this was the hand of God against him for his own blasphemy for his own sin. But, but Isaiah said, no, 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 no. You don't, don't you see? It wasn't for his. It was for ours. He for us. He our substitute. That's why this was happening to him. He was the sinless son of God. And, and he took our griefs, our sorrows. That carries through. Verse 5. I He was wounded for our Transgressions—that That is a fatal wound for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace with his stripes. We're the ones who are healed. He says, listen, we've all gone astray, turned to our own one. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then notice, even later as we work can work our way through this, this passage, it says that, Verse, middle verse 8, he was stricken for the transgression of my people. And then, verse 10, his soul makes an offering for sin. Then, verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. This was for us, you see, not, not for him. Something was taking place on the cross that nobody could really see. I mean, you couldn't really see it. I mean, if you, if you walked by Calvary that day, you see three crosses, three guys die. How would you know that the one in the middle, at that moment in time, is taking on himself the guilt of sinners, not his own? but of others in such a way that his father would receive that as payment for their sin. How would you know that unless God told us? How would you know that unless it was revealed to us? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? It comes to us. He tells us this is what took place on that day at that particular point in time. He says, now believe this, trust, consider this. Why did he die? Nobody really had anything against him. Why did he die? This was the thing that, that, that so confounded Martin Luther in his journey, his pilgrimage, to, to really coming to faith. couldn't get it. He couldn't understand. Why did Christ die? Why did God let that happen to his servant, this one who was sinless? And then it dawned on him as he read through the scripture, the Psalms, as he read through Romans, as he read through Galatians, that, that it wasn't Jesus' sin for which he was punished. It was Ours. It's interesting that they would have thought Jesus to be smitten by God because of his own blasphemy. But the truth of the matter, he was smitten by God for our blasphemy. Because we, being men, think ourselves to be God. God. Now, that's the very sin in the Garden of Eden. The sin in the Garden of Eden was the serpent coming to Adam and Eve and saying, uh, you can be like God. You could become the judge of good and evil. You could be the ones who, 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 who measure, who judge all of life. You see, that's what God does. God's the one who, who defines our lives. He's the one who directs our lives. And we're to delight and to find joy, worship Him in the context of how He defines us and needs us. But the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says, No, no, no! you can do that. Even the tree of the knowledge. Define good and evil for yourselves and for all of humanity. You you are the judge of those things. And that's been our sin ever since. Every time, every time we think we know better than God. Every time we live by our own wisdom. Every time we value uh, that which God doesn't value. Everything we love that which He doesn't love. Everything we hate that which He doesn't hate. Everything that we depend on. Every time we depend upon that which hasn't been given to us by God, we're making ourselves to be God. And you see, because of that, because our lives are supposed to be lives that are defined by Him and directed by Him, our lives are supposed to be that which find their delight in Him, then when that isn't true, the just punishment for that is death, cutting us off from life. And isn't just cutting ourselves off from breathing, but it's cutting ourselves off from the very blessing, the very presence of God. Just hell. And so Jesus comes to take that hell upon Himself for us. That's His sorrow. That's the grief that He takes. That eternal grief, that eternal sorrow, he takes upon himself for us, that we might believe in him, trust in him, and thus, be spared thus, no God. As he says, it's this chastisement that he experiences that brings to us Peace, shalom, it it reconciles us to God because the peace that we lack is peace with God. There's hostility there because we've sinned against Him. Thus, if He's going to be just, He must judge. And there's hostility there on our case too because we just as soon not have Him in our lives. But Jesus takes that chastisement so He takes away that hostility from God, that enmity, that hostility from God to us. And, and now it's opened. We can go into his presence. We can receive forgiveness because of Christ. So he comes to meet our need. And we have, like sheep gone astray, turned to our own way. But God in his graciousness has laid upon Christ the iniquity of us all. And then this next stanza from seven verses 7 through 9 lays out for us that, that Jesus did it voluntarily with joy. There are some who speak of this Jesus taking our sin upon himself as cosmic child abuse. How could the father do this to his son when his son didn't deserve it and lay on him the penalty of others, that others should rightly take, I mean isn't that child abuse wouldn't we consider that to be child abuse if you beat one of your sons for the, for the, for the, for the sin of another, isn't that wrong to do, and we say yes if we did that, but, but there's something here that we mustn't miss and that is that the son did it voluntarily he did it with joy, in fact you get this sense as we read through the scripture that before the creation of the world, there was this agreement between father and son, this, there was this covenant between the two, where the son said yes I will for your glory, and for their good, I will take upon myself their sin. So as we read through the scripture, for instance, we read in Ephesians chapter 1, that it was before the creation of the world that God chose us in Christ. See, before the creation of the world, there was this agreement that there would be these in Christ these very ones for whom we would come, for whom we would die, for whom we would gain their salvation, if you will. that They would trust in Him. They would be in Him. That all happened before the creation of the world. And thus, this is now the fruition of that. And the Son comes and says, yes, I will do it. I am the good shepherd. I, I, nobody takes my life, He said. I give it. I give it freely. I give it voluntarily. I, I give it for the glory of my Father, for the good of His people. And so he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He submitted to the injustice at that point in time. Why? Because he had agreed to, and he he knew the value of it. He esteemed that value. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away and for his generation. And then the question, who considered why he died? Who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And then this amazing mystery. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. In other words, he looked like he should be thrown with the wicked. That's, that, that's where he was. But but oddly enough, he ended up being exalted even in his burial by being put with the rich. And then this last stanza gets at the very heart of things. It was indeed the will of the Lord to crush him. It's a great question people ask. Who killed Jesus, really? Who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Well, there's a litany. We could run through. You could say, well, Judas certainly had some responsibility, didn't he? And you could say, well, the Jewish authorities, they had some responsibility I mean, they planned it, and they paid for it, and they pleaded with the Romans to kill him. So, so don't they have some responsibility there? And Pilate, I mean, my goodness, he could, have, he could have done away with the whole thing, probably, but he didn't. And, and then the Romans, it was their way of killing people, and they sort of took that up on behalf of the Jewish authorities, and they, they put Jesus to death and all of that. want to get spiritual about it, we can say, well, it was our sin that really killed him. He died for us. If we hadn't sinned, there'd be no need for him to come. So, so yes, that's true. But this is, no, God did it. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It pleased him to do it. Not pleased in the sense that he was sitting there with a big smile on his face, oh, I can't wait to see this. But pleased him in the sense that he said, no, this will reveal my glory to my people. And It did. Because where else could anyone see this kind of love? In fact, the Apostle Paul writes of, of this kind of love in Romans in chapter 5. It's, it's that kind of love, again, that we don't really have a category in our brain for. He says, for a while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. We go, okay, that makes sense. We might die for good people, we might die for a righteous person. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is, he died for his enemies. Died for those who were against him. He so said, Nobody dies for those people. That's God's kind of love. That's what. It was amazing. It was indeed the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for sin, however, it says he shall see his offspring. That That is, those he dies for will be his very own, his offspring. And he, that is the Father, shall prolong the Son's day. That is, he'll rise. He'll continue to live. And you see, in his resurrection, this Jesus, as he lives, he announces to us, yes... This sacrifice has been accepted. Yes, my father has accepted it. It wasn't for my sin, but for someone else's sin that I died. He took the payment, and now I'm free to go. Out of the anguish of his soul, this servant shall see and be satisfied. He'll be pleased with all that takes place. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant... To make many to be accounted righteous. In other words, the end result for those for whom He dies, the end result for those who trust in Him is that they're counted righteous. Think about that. Those who deserve to be condemned are now justified. Not only just as if you've never sinned, but just as if you've always obeyed. You are in the very presence of God as one counted righteous because of Him. The spoil will be divided and we'll belong to Him, be His. He will be our intercessor, defender forever. He was numbered with us and has conquered sin and death for us. Now the question, of course, is do we believe that? Do we really believe that? Is that the very foundation of our lives? Is that the guts of our existence? Do we really believe that? Is that good news for us? Does that thrill our souls? Does that inform everything? That we deserved eternal punishment. We deserve hell, we deserve the wrath of God, and we don't get it. And we don't get it, not because of anything on us, but in everything of Him. And we sink our whole lives into that. You see, when people celebrate Christmas, that's really what we're celebrating. We're really celebrating this one who was promised to come has come. Because this one who was promised to come was the very one who was promised to be our substitute, to take our sin upon Himself that we might be counted righteous, that we might belong to God. If that doesn't thrill our souls, we don't believe it. Because it has to thrill our souls. It has to be the very guts of our existence. Like Jesus announced that, very thing to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed is leading, all of, uh, uh, leading up to this he took bread that was around the table and he says, you know, we're celebrating deliverance here we're celebrating being released from slavery in Egypt and all of that but I want to tell you something, that this is my body and it's given for you I'm your substitute I'm the one who will take it for you That you might live. Then he says I want you to understand this gospel. This truth. This cup. Is the new covenant. In my blood. Shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. My sorrows. My griefs. For you. Chastisement. Punishment. For you. Your iniquities. Your transgressions. Your sins. On me. My blood. For you. Let me ask you to bow. It's Christmas time. Lots of distractions in our culture about it take a moment just ponder consider why did Christ die? for me do I believe this? Father in heaven On this day. I pray. That you would reveal to each of us. Clearly. The arm of the Lord. His power. To rescue. His power to save. By revealing to us. Again Jesus. It's very one who. Was born that he might die, that we might live. Enable us on this day to reaffirm, to say Amen, to say, Yes, that's true. So please I pray, take this bread, this juice that's before us, as this word has gone forth. Use it in the way that Jesus prescribed; that it would be His very presence among us; that He would be here spiritually; that we might meet with Him round this table as we've met with Him round His Word; that we would know that, that which He did is for us; that we would. Believe that. We trust none other, not ourselves, not our own goodness, not our giving or our pleasant personalities or our patience or our kindness or our compassion or our love for any. We wouldn't trust any of that, but only trust Him. We'd rest in Him. That he is our righteousness. And that would inform everything about our lives. May on this day we affirm that. May on this day we say amen to that. And live it out, I pray. So take this juice, this bread and... Enable us to know that Christ is this close to us as this bread and juice is even in us, that the work that he did is that close to us and fills us and satisfies us. And most especially brings peace between us and you. We pray that we may come to this table by faith and be blessed by the very presence of Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who know themselves to be in need of it. All those who understand themselves to be sinners in His sight, without hope except in His sovereign mercy. They receive and depend upon the Lord Jesus as He's offered to us in the Gospel as the Savior of sinners by way of His death and resurrection. To those who desire to live, therefore, as those thrilled... By the gospel that's true for you, let me invite you to come and remember in your coming what you're doing is you're saying yes to this, yes to Christ, yes I believe this maybe for the millionth time, maybe for the first and you're saying it to God you're saying it to yourself, but remember you're saying to all those people around you so as you come, they're looking upon you and they're saying, oh, I didn't know you believed this, but I guess you do, that's good Oh, yes, you believe this. I know that. I'm with you. So while that's true for you, let me ask you to come. These two sections down the aisle. To my left, these two sections. Down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread. Dip it in the cup. and Allow it to bounce off your head. He for me. Please come.